Thank you for joining us for this episode of From All Sides, a podcast by Cube Group, where we explore the strategic, organizational, and human sides of the major issues facing public value organizations in the current world, and particularly the current COVID-19 crisis. Our series focuses on the different ways the COVID-19 pandemic impacts public service leaders and their organizations. And we discuss the ways we can be better prepared to lead Australia through response and recovery. Cube Group acknowledges the traditional owners on the land in which we work. Cube's offices is on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners of the land on which we work and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. And to Aboriginal Elders and community members who may be listening today. For more information on each episode of the podcast, please visit our website, cubegroup.com.au. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello. Today is December 3rd, 2021. Australia is continuing to move towards a new normal as the worst of the COVID-19 pandemic is hopefully behind us in many parts thanks to our high vaccination rates. In today's discussion, we're continuing on our series reflecting on the experience of public purpose leaders during the pandemic. One of the stark differences the pandemic created has been the focus of public purpose sectors. Some sectors, especially our public health system, were brought sharply into the spotlight. Others found themselves quickly out of it. This experience could not have been more true than for our guest today. Lee Mises is the CEO of the Environment Protection Authority. The EPA is Victoria's environmental regulator, focused on protecting Victoria's natural assets from harm, from pollution and waste. With a new Environment Protection Act, the EPA is going through a period of significant change, which will be part of our discussion today. But Lee was also the founding CEO of Bushfire Recovery Victoria. BRV is a dedicated agency to support Victorian communities to recover from the devastating impact of bushfires. It was established in response to the catastrophic bushfires that occurred in Victoria in the summer of 2019-20, just a few months before the pandemic began. I'm delighted to have this chance to learn about Lee's experience through these two exceptional periods. Lee, thanks so much for being a part of this conversation. Thanks for having me. Uh, Can we start, Lee, by talking about where you're speaking to us from? What's been your remote working setup and, and how have you found it? Yeah, so I'm coming to you from our, our spare room at our house in Ballarat. Pretty quiet here today, actually, uh, with kids back at school and, and, and wife working. But uh, I guess it's fair to say over the, over the past two years, like, like many people, it hasn't always been this quiet in the house um, with, with the combination of you know, homeschooling, dogs, deliveries, you know, the number of meetings that get interrupted by the postman or package delivery at the door. Um, so it's been, a, it's been an interesting couple of years, but I think, um, you know, I, I've got to say, I've, I think I've adapted pretty well and I think the, the organisations I've worked with have uh, adapted pretty well. Even when we get the power outages and you find yourself, you know, in the car trying to charge your phone to do a, a national heads of uh, EPA's meeting. But, you know, they're the little curveballs we get thrown and we get through Keeps things keeps things inter- interesting. Um, I certainly love the humanising of having meetings interrupted for real life, like postmen and dogs and cats. Yeah. There's there's something beautiful about that. When we began all this, when the pandemic began, you had a very different role to the one you had today. You were the, the founding CEO of Bushfire Recovery Victoria, um, and you were responding to what we all thought was going to be the defining event of 2020. Those uh, those enormous and catastrophic bushfires that happened over the 2019-20 summer. Let's start with your role there. What was BRV up to at the commencement of the pandemic and and what did the shutdown mean for you and for bushfire recovery? 
Bushfire Recovery Victoria was was established by the Premier on the 6th of January 2020. And as you said, really in response to, to what were the biggest bushfires that Victoria had seen since 1939. Hundreds of communities impacted, hundreds of houses lost, 1,500 or 1.5 million, sorry, hectares of, of public land. And you know, what, what was recognised by government was that there needed to be a real dedicated focus to, to recovery and the long tail of, of recovery. So, so Bushfire Recovery Victoria was, was established to really coordinate across all the government agencies and to empower communities to, to lead their own recovery from, from that, those devastating events. And uh, yeah, early on for me, um, from, from really the 6th of January, was, was I kind of described as building the plane and flying it at the same time. So we had these real needs from community and at the same time trying to stand up and establish you know, the basic systems and processes that you need for an organisation to staff up an organisation and to really start getting that that assistance and, and you know, whether it was financial assistance or, or case support out into where it was really needed. So it, it was a crazy busy time, but, you know, one of the most rewarding times of, of my career when, when, you know, we, you could really start to see those services flow. And, you know, I'm really proud about how quickly we got those services flowing into community. BRV had a very big on the ground presence too, yeah? So part of what you're talking about is setting up is also teams on, on site, different locations. Tell us a bit about sort of what was happening on the ground through BRV. Yeah, so I had a strong view and, and perhaps really based on, I guess, a, a career in really leading regional program delivery that BRV could not operate effectively if we were just based in Melbourne. We needed local people in local communities understanding local needs, local values, local priorities. So you know, one of the first things, I think it was in the first week of our, our existence, we, we kind of leveraged a bit off what was then the Department of um, Health and Human Services to sort of co-op some staff through through some comments and stand up regional teams. So so we stood up regional teams in in Gippsland and in the northeast of the state. So the two main impacted areas and off those regional kind of bases. So we had our, our regional offices um, in in Bansdale and sort of up around. Uh, we kind of moved a bit, but around Coryong really in in the northeast. We then built out recovery hubs. So we found ourselves with. with recovery hubs, really service centres based in small communities, whether it was Sarsfield, Mallacoota, Bright. I think we had at at one point up around eight or nine recovery hubs based in communities wherever we could staffed by local people because that was important. They had local relationships. It was enabled us as an organisation by using locals to establish trust and a connection really quickly. And as you know, know, that's so important in in the type of work that that we were doing. You said you set up in January, so you had all of six weeks before the pandemic started to make the news and maybe a couple more before we're into some significant physical distancing restrictions. Give us a sense of that experience, getting being in such an embryonic stage of, of work and such a formative period and then being um, moving to remote working. It's funny, I was, I was reflecting a bit on this not long ago, walking out of a, a whole of government meeting. I think it was, it was one of the cabinet committee meetings that was talking about the bushfire and, and some of the services we were we were delivering and what we were intending to do. And I remember that meeting finished and walking out, and I was walking out with a colleague from Health and Human Services who turned to me and said, "I'm hearing about this. Uh, co- it wasn't even called COVID nineteen at the moment. I can't 
can't even remember what, but, uh, you know, I reckon we're potentially on the verge of a pandemic and sort of going, well, you know, not paying too much attention. Little to, did I know that very shortly after that, the world changed for, for, for everyone and, and BRV as, as well. So, you know, it had some really immediate impacts on, on, on bushfire recovery, Victoria. My model for staffing up was kind of bringing in a surge capacity through, you know, secondments from, from other uh, parts of government and departmental secretaries were amazing. You know, they were giving me their very best people because it was the big priority. It was the big disaster we were dealing with. So I'd had a plan where I would bring some comments in and have a very then planned approach to getting recruiting the right people because I was establishing an ongoing organisation. The BRV is, is, is permanent. All of a sudden, pandemic hits, secretaries very apologetically were, were ringing and saying, look, we need our people back. You know, we've got all of these other priorities. You know, you're going to have to find an alternative. So I guess that caused me to have to fast track recruitment, which, which we did. And I've got a great team in place. So that was one example. Obviously, you know, as a very, very new organisation, we, we were still getting to know one another in, in many cases. You know, those, those kind of the, the culture of the organisation was really still forming. Again, sort of reflecting on it, I'm not convinced whether it, it helped or hindered not having really deep roots as an organisation. In one way, you know, we didn't have set ways of doing things. We weren't sort of wedded to particular technologies, particular ways of working. So, you know, that did enable us to adapt quite quickly. Uh, the other side, we didn't have those kind of the relationship sides that I think we, we've all relied on so much over, over the last two years weren't as well established too. So I kind of land on there was pros and cons to, to being fairly young and immature organisation. That's pretty fascinating. Uh, that's a really interesting observation, isn't it? To, to actually in some ways have an advantage of being a brand new team and and then moving into that environment where all you've known is relating this way actually in some ways make, makes that transition much much easier as, as opposed to trying to change established practices that are already already happening. What about on the ground? What about in community? How much were your activities restricted there and, and when, how much did that hinder the recovery effort? It's just a whole wave of new complexities for, for communities. You know, we were in the process of, of really rolling out our cleanup program. So we had a state-managed cleanup program. We were working with Grocon as, as the master contractor COVID just slowed that down, slowed down the process of establishment and then required us to put in whole new layers of controls to make sure that we were not spreading COVID-19. So, so we had to put lots of controls in place and then deal with this overlay of almost fear from within communities because, you know, as much as we wanted and tried to, and, and, you know, I think we did pretty well. I think we we're up at 70% plus sort of local crews. We were bringing in specialist contractors from Melbourne. And if you're a community in, say, Mallacoota, far, far east of the state, and you're hearing about COVID-19 in Melbourne, it's not kind of, you know, we don't want that in our community. So there was this kind of real... I guess almost a tension within communities about wanting these the, the fire and the, the buildings that were destroyed to be cleaned up really quickly, but this fear of bringing sort of contractors in for, from outside. So that, that was one example. Another one was, I think, you know, fundamental, I believe, to community recovery is communities being able to come together, to, to grieve about the, what they've been through together, to talk about what they want to do as part of their recovery, to identify their priorities is part of, of not just recovery, but I think about resilience building in, in communities. And, you know, there were some great examples, you know, Sarsfield, which j just out of um, Bansdale in, uh, out in Gippsland, you know, they were uh, having a, a Friday night barbecue. You know, over 200 people were coming together every Friday night through January into February, and then all of a sudden it stopped. 
we weren't allowed to have large gatherings. And and so those traditional kind of community barbecues or town hall meetings where people come together, talk about what they've been through, talk about their recovery, they just weren't able to happen. And we saw that really impact for, for the long term. And of course, part of that coming together was, was reflecting on what worked well and what didn't work well in terms of um, the fire response. And you know, coming in, I remember very clearly into the 2021 summer, the community felt as though they hadn't been able to, to de- debrief with, with the first response agency, so CFA, Emergency Management, Victoria. And they were really concerned that some of the issues that they, that they confronted in the big fires of 1920 hadn't been addressed and is there a risk? So it was kind of not just an inability to grieve together, but a fear that those, you know, gee, some of these issues haven't been fixed and are we going to go through this again? So it, it was a, it added layers of, of complexity and quite deep complexity in communities. And your point about um, disrupting the sort of recovery and, and resilience process is, is quite profound as well. We've had conversations on this conversation before with Luke Wilson, who's the cross-border commissioner, and he mm. he just talked about the significant cultural importance in rural communities of coming together. It's a special thing, particularly for rural communities, that we, we come together, we travel to get together, and that's part of how we build our relationships, that's how, part of how we deal with difficult issues. And, and as adept as many people who live in Victoria, uh, rural Victoria are, with online, they were, they were often well ahead of their metropolitan cousins in terms of Zoom and, and online working before before this hit. There still is something almost particularly important for rural communities about physically coming together and just the worst possible time for that to be disrupted. Absolutely. You could see it. It was it was quite palatable, this want to bring people together. And I remember, you know, we were having conversations at, at some stages about how we might be able to use football ovals and spread people out and loudspeakers and you know anything we can do and we were trying to be as creative as we could in enabling that that to occur but we did find though that people did adapt pretty pretty quickly to online so community recovery committees formed they met we would meet with them we put COVID safe practices into our hubs. So, you know, whilst we had to pivot a lot of those services to online, we were able to do that pretty quickly. And we found ourselves providing a whole range of different services as a result. So, you know, you think about, you know, the digital divide, if you like, in regional Victoria or anywhere, but in regional Victoria, where, you know, we, we were working with people who still went into the bank to do their banking. Like, I can't remember the first time I've stepped, been into a bank, do everything online, but then, you know, some people did that. So to ask them to get onto Zoom, well, it was a big ask. And, and you know, these are traumatised people, of course, like they've been through fire, you know, it impacts on your decision making. And then we're asking them to do something new in the midst of this big kind of COVID pandemic, which is also kind of traumatising for, for people. So we found ourselves almost a digital concierge where, where people could come in safely into our, our hubs. We'd support them to, to get online through our computer systems, you know, they'd be able to talk to their financial counsellor or, or their case support worker. And then while we were there, we would sort of connect them into, you know, the family in Sydney, for example, so they could talk to the grandkids at the same time. So we found ourselves kind of having to almost modify the services we were providing at the same time, just to recognise the, the pressures that people were under. I also wanted to ask you about the experience of coming out of the spotlight. You know, you, you mentioned at the start, you had wonderful generosity from secretaries. You had all the mandate in the world. You had a heck of a job to do, but you had, you were in the spotlight. And, and so were, so were those communities that were impacted. Just a couple of months later, this pandemic hits and, and it's potentially a feeling of, yeah, certainly coming out of the spotlight, 
what was that experience like for you and your team? And, and what was it like for the communities to feel a sense of which we're, we're moving on to another crisis while cleanup is still happening, homes are still are still destroyed, that there's still very much live trauma and yet a feeling perhaps that others have moved on. Yeah, and, and I think it was probably more acute within community. They felt all of a sudden, you know, simple indicators. You know, it was fire it was on the front page of every major newspaper and then all of a sudden it wasn't. And there was this real fear that they would be forgotten. Whilst I'm sure the, the, the Premier and government in making the decision to set up a dedicated and permanent recovery agency didn't have an eye to, to a pandemic, or, or maybe they did, I think in hindsight it, it meant that we as an agency did not get involved in the broader pandemic response. We were there to focus on those communities that were impacted by, by bushfire. We were able to communicate that, that really clearly but there was this, still this sense of, you know, are we going to be forgotten? So, you know, we had to do lots of, you know, we did multiple direct mail outs to people, literally telling them, we are here for you. You are not forgotten. And, you know, just really simple things to, to re- reinforce that we are here, that we recognise that they are still in need and that we are a dedicated agency to work with them. But even still, you know, despite all of that, there was this general, you know, we're, we're being forgotten. And, and in part, that was because I think, across the system of of government, across the system of service delivery, COVID slowed things down as people were adapting to different ways of working. So, you know, what might have taken, you know, two weeks to get get funding through was taking three or four. So it was was kind of lots of little things that that we had to manage. We had to re-engineer processes. So people felt and knew that they were still being cared for, that, that we were still there for them and that they had not been forgotten through the process. Let's switch gears a little bit now. Um, earlier this year, you began as CEO of Environment Protection Authority. Quite aside from the pandemic, the EPA is going through a pretty substantial period of change in itself. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that change, what's happening and what are the changes or your operating model that you're working through at the moment? Yeah, so, so Environmental Protection Authority or EPA is, is a fantastic institution. In fact, an institution that, that's turned 50 this year. We are Victoria's independent environmental regulator. And as you said, been through over the, the last uh, really four years, the organisation has you know, once in a generation change as a new Environment Protection Act has been introduced. And, and that act went live on 1 July this year, delayed by, by 12 months due to the impact of, of the pandemic. So a new act which fundamentally changes the role of, of the EPA from that real focus on, you know, we're here to respond to pollution and waste events and the impacts of those events once they occur to that a real focus on, on prevention. And central to the new act is, is what's called the general environmental duty. So a duty that applies to, to all Victorians to understand their risks and to take action to protect the environment from negative impacts. So a, a, a positive or, or duties-based obligation that, that's based very much on the, the occupational health and safety laws that ex- have existed here in Victoria for, for 10 years. So now it's been a really interesting process of standing up all the systems and processes that support such such fundamental change, everything from IT changes through to you know new policies and procedures within the organisation. So big, big, big change. And uh, yeah, with, with the act going going live, of course, part of what I had to do was really really change the focus of the organisation from getting ready for the commencement of a new act to being ready to deliver. 
and that required a different set of capabilities, a much more what I would call an outward-looking focus for the organisation and a new operating model is what we've put in place to achieve that. As you describe it, it's a profoundly different mindset for, for a regulator, isn't it? It's a, a particularly a rich history of 50 years, like organisations develop methods, cultures, ways of thinking, um, and there's always, I suppose, a temptation towards compliance for a regulator as, a, you know, that's that's always a risk. This is quite a profound shift in the whole sort of regulatory mind shift. And so I'm, I'm just thinking about how much that impacts sort of not only your formal processes and systems, but your your culture, your um, your values. You know that, how you go about your day to day, what what you look for. That's quite a quite a profound change. Absolutely, it is. You know, it, it was sort of said to me early on. You know, it took us fifty years to learn how to work under one piece of legislation. We're not going to change overnight, and, and that was kind of reinforced by reflections from colleagues at, at WorkSafe about when when the duties based or, or positive positive obligations were, were introduced through to OHS regulation, it really took 10 years for that organisation to optimise its performance under that new framework. Now, hopefully it doesn't take us 10 years because we've got the benefit of the learnings that WorkSafe went through, but it will take time and it, it is, it's an absolute mindset change. It's, it's not about us, you know, taking out the big stick, although we still have a big stick. In fact, we've got, you know, stronger sanctions and more powers under the new Act, but a much stronger emphasis on how we engage, educate, lift the state of knowledge across business, across community about impacts on the environment and the, the practical steps that they can take to, to reduce or, or avoid those, those impacts. And that means that you know, we need a much stronger presence. We need more boots on the ground. We need to be in community, talking to people, creating those networks across industry so that they can share because that's what we're ultimately what we want to see is is better environmental performance. You know, it's not about the number of fines we issue, the number of um, penalty infringement notices. It's about you know using all the tools in our toolkit to achieve better environment and better human health outcomes. I think what I'm hearing uh, from you as well is appreciation that you said it took um, the EPA 50 years to get used to your act. It probably also took your your stakeholders, um, uh, people operating uh, under the act, 50 years to get used to that one, and, and it won't take them 50 years to get next to the new one. But as much as it's a mindset shift for you, just as much for your for people who are operating under the act to get used to what it means to understand it, um, a, a transformative change for them too. Yeah, and there was a, a fair to say a, a real fear that if they made a mistake, we were going to be there with a big stick and. Part of what I did was we put out a statement of regulatory intent, and it really was describing how we would go about our role in regulating new laws. It, it served two purposes in my mind. One was to, to align the organisation end-to-end about this is how we're going to go about it, but it was also to send a strong message to industry that we wanted them to have a go and that we accept that you know this is new for some businesses. They had never dealt with an EPA, never dealt with environmental regulation before. They were new entrants. Others, it was a bit different. They'd been in the in and around environmental regulation for a while, but we needed to, to send a strong message that we understand this is new. We understand despite best efforts, uh, honest mistakes are going to happen. And, and so we're not going to take the big stick. We want you to have a go. We're here to support you. We want to build capability because prevention is a long game, right? And, and we don't want people being unwilling to take those first steps to really change how they manage risk, how they identify risk through fear of, you know, EPA coming in and and hitting them with a big fine. So the statement of regulatory intent, I think, was a really important document for us to send a signal 
to industry, recognising exactly that. This is new. It's going to take time for us all to adapt. Let's learn together. But ultimately, we're going to get to a standard where you know, we, we will start always trying to kind of lift performance. And we do that again using those different tools that we have. Um, so between BRV and now your time at the EPA, you're you're developing a, a habit or a tendency to lead pretty dramatic change processes during times when change processes are pretty difficult. We're um, working remotely and already under a great deal of, of change and, and, and the ability to get together, which we've already discussed. Tell us about leading such a significant change process, often through the other end of a, sc- of a screen with such, uh, you know, with ongoing physical distancing restrictions really in, in, impacting um, how we do it. How have, you, how have you gone about engaging your staff? How have you gone about engaging your stakeholders? What, what's the online experience been like or, or what have you been able to, to do even with a bit of innovation to, to either do things differently um, to still get the kind of engagement and the leadership that is needed through a period like this? I've had one benefit. I live in regional Victoria and a lot of the business that we do has been in regional Victoria. So, you know, I've still, even through the 12 months, you know, despite those, the, the bigger lockdowns have been able to get out and about a bit. A bit. But that, that's meant that, you know, I can sort of eyeball and, 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 you know, sit around a table and a whiteboard with parts of the team, but certainly not, not all of the team. I know at BRV, one of the things that we would do was just twice a week, we would get all staff together online and just talk through what are the priorities because you know th- those incidental interactions that you would normally get in the kitchen area, you know, the water cooler conversations for want of a better term just won't, won't happen. So we were trying to kind of cr- almost create that environment o- online. So, you know, coming together often, not around a particular meeting agenda, but just to talk about what, what's happening in, in, and, and giving people the opportunity to acknowledge colleagues. You know, I'd always end each meeting with a, one of my bad dad jokes just to try and kind of create a bit of sense of fun within an organisation. And, you know, you think about BRV, you're dealing with trauma all the time. So you do need to be able to kind of lighten the load a little bit on, on people. And EPA has been, been no different, trying to create good, interactions online and well I will say EPA is a much more formal organization so I'm trying to kind of break down a bit of that formality to kind of again connect the organization together but you know one of the biggest challenges for me has been going through the the operating model which was you know a a fundamental restructure of the organization I wanted to to engage staff and had had planned as because I'm one of those people who likes to get out sit in a room sit around a whiteboard kind of share ideas and that's hard online I managed to to get out a few times before you know we were locked down and I would often have to kind of you know, I remember once out in Bendigo finishing, ready to drive to, to Gippsland, being told that, no, we're about to go into lockdown. So having to divert, switch everything on, on, online. But I, I think in some ways it's it's that old adage is you can't communicate enough. And and for me through change, you know, I reckon I did, I did three, ra- three draft structures that I did probably Oh, must be 60 plus two hour workshops online with staff. And it was it was me talking to them and, and explaining, but but providing that opportunity for them to to ask questions. Um, but at the same time recognizing that not everyone wants to ask questions online. So giving multiple channels for people to to raise their issues or, or concerns. So I felt you kind of almost had to double the effort you normally would, you know, because you can get I, I find myself 
I can get cut through easier um, in a room. I can read the room easier. You can read body language. That's harder online. So it was almost kind of doubling your effort, doing your best, providing multiple channels for, for, for communication. But you know, importantly for me, I, I was really deliberate to, if I was asked a question or given a, a comment, I would feed back, you know, this is how it's considered it. This is why it's, how it's been reflected in an updated structure or this is why it hasn't been incorporated um, and just continually keeping that that feedback that that feedback loop open it took a lot of effort but i think it pays off in the long term oh, i think that's well said i think um you ask anyone who's thought about it for a little while being present being visible is really important during times of big change and and you can at least be visible on the end of uh, uh, the other end of a screen and and i'm sure that 120 hours just engaging with staff in long conversations whether that was the most effective or not i suspect it meant something to your team that you did it and, and i reckon that's pretty powerful while we're preparing this you and i were chatting a little bit about what we're learning about when online conversations do work quite well and when they don't and um it sounds like you hit on a couple of those where they where they don't where, where you really would have preferred to be in the room and and to be able to read people a bit better those sorts of things have you found any advantages from doing more online engagement are there particularly i'm sure the tyranny of distance must be quite a thing for you at times is there has there been any sort of positive learnings ways things that have been slightly easier now that we're doing things online a little bit more yeah, look, I think there's a couple of things. I mean, we tend to call a meeting for everything. That's kind of our what we do in the public service. I think online has kind of caused, do we really need a meeting or can we do these things shorter? And I think as we go forward, we will value why we come together in person differently. It won't be, I don't believe, for the transactional. I think that, that can happen over uh, online. It'll be for the, those more strategic conversations and also be for the more incidental conversations. But, um, you know, I, I think for me, learning, you know, what, what I can do online versus what, you know, I, I really need to be there in, in person and why. And, and, and for me, it's for those more difficult, complex, strategic conversations where, you know, it's important that people get to kind of read my body language. I got I get to read them or equally where you can sort of sit around the, the whiteboard. So, yeah, look, I think we'll use offices differently going forward. Meeting rooms, for example, you know, we're, we're kind of busily looking at how we, do we need all these meeting rooms or do we need to kind of reform how these meeting rooms are, are, are used or, or will be used and, and, and what they're for. So I think, you know, we've now embraced online. We've got to continue that for the right purposes, we've still got to have that provision for people to come back, um, come together uh, again because it, it's it's necessary. And, and for a regulator, you know, we've still got to be able to get into businesses on the ground and, and do our job. I wonder if you could leave us with what, what are the one or two things you would like us to learn from this experience? What do you hope that the pandemic teaches us that can contribute to, to better public services and a better public service into the future? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a couple for me. I mean, my reflection over over a long period in 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 public service is that it, as institutions, we do have a bias towards complexity, right? We, we make things more complex than they probably need to, whether that's through process or, or or other. And I reckon what the pandemic has has taught us is that gee, we can really make quite good decisions really quickly. We don't need all of this complexity. And I hope we I hope we keep that. I, I hope we keep these streamlined processes, short strong accountability mechanisms, but streamline the processes so that we can make better decisions faster. And for me in EPA, that part of that is about pushing decision making down into the organisation closest to where those decisions are made. You know, again, strong belief, our local staff know their local communities, know their local environment much better 
than anyone else. And I reckon they'll make the, the best decisions. So, you know, empowering them to do that without needing. I, I always say in the organisation, if I'm the eighth signature on a piece of paper, I really question the value I'm adding. So let's let's get rid of this complexity. Let's Let's focus on the outcome and let's streamline the processes. The other thing I think that we've learned is the real care that's come through in the public service, the willingness to, to, to work together. You know, I saw that in bushfire recovery and we've seen that through the pandemic about how organisations and how the public service works across organisational and institutional boundaries. Sometimes that kind of patch protection that can creep in has kind of dissolved somewhat. And again, it's really important. Again, it's not about confusing accountabilities, but it's saying how do we leverage the capabilities that we've got in each organisation to really focus on solving the big problems for, for community. I think if we can sort of avoid going back, avoid going back to the complexity, the unnecessary complexity, and keep those permeable boundaries across institutions and, and, and that willingness to come together around solving common problems or solving the biggest problems for the Victorian community, I reckon that'll be gold for us as, as, as organisations, as well as some of these more flexible work practices that, that we've all, I think, all benefited from. So there's some great stuff that's come out of pandemic and, you know, it's really important and I'll certainly be committed to to keeping those things alive in, in EPA. Our guest today has been Lee Myers. Lee, thank you so much for this conversation. No, thank you. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. <laughs>